and welcome to The Art of Work, a podcast about how we find fulfilment as we pay the bills. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Sharath Jeevan, one of the world's leading experts on motivation. After starting off in strategy consulting, Sharath started eBay's charity arm and then Teaching Leaders, an organisation that helps school leaders raise life chances for the most disadvantaged children. In 2022, he was awarded an OBE for starting and running STIR Education, which has helped hundreds of thousands of teachers fall back in love with teaching. As executive chairman of Intrinsic Labs, he now helps leaders build motivating cultures. He's the author of Intrinsic, and in this podcast, he tells us how to reignite our inner drive. Hello, Sheriff, and welcome to The Art of Work. I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Christina. Real pleasure. So you're the world's leading expert on intrinsic leadership. What is intrinsic leadership and why does it matter? I think we're in a world now, Christina, where um, there are so few um, predetermined answers, let alone right answers. And I think the idea of, of us as leaders, you know, knowing the right answer, which is really pretty much how we've been trained over, over generations, it just feels so redundant now. And so my work is a lot about how to help leaders figure out three really important questions. You know, how do they dare to set um, a, a direction that really feels right for them, feels authentic? Um, how do they uh, really try to ignite other people's potential? Um, how do they align motivation? And how do they keep learning as leaders and keep growing um, together so they and the people they lead um, keep developing in these very, very unusual times? So it's a very different spin on leadership, a different way of thinking about it, and one that I think is really much more fit for the, the times we're in today. Mm, well, it's been a fascinating journey to that point, and I want to talk about various points along that journey. But your book, which I loved, Intrinsic, is a manifesto to reignite our inner drive. One of the key themes in it is finding purpose. Mm. What would you say your purpose is? Great question. So I, I, I do an exercise, Christina, where I ask the leaders I work with to write down or develop a personal mission statement. And so, you know, companies, typically organizations of any kind, have a mission statement. Very few of us, though, as individuals or as leaders have one. Um, and I use these words of I help to and by. So my one is I help leaders across sectors navigate questions of direction, motivation and potential by writing, um, coaching and facilitating. Um, so just a very simple piece. And I think the, to explain the why behind that, I was a leader for 15 years. I worked a, a lot in the education sector, ran um, a couple of organizations and founded them that reached about about 8 million children in total, um, that tens of thousands of schools. And I just realized how tough it is being a leader today. And I felt I'd had my time in the ring. I did you know, the best I could do. Um, I was a highly imperfect leader. I think I'm um, very proud of things. But looking back with hindsight, so many things I could have done better I feel this chapter of my life should be about helping other leaders navigate um, those times. And I'm, I'm incredibly, I feel incredibly privileged. I'm working with about 70 leaders over these last couple of years in groups everywhere, ranging from large corporates, from L'Oreal or a, a Skyscanner, all the way through to the NHS, um, cultural organizations, um, uh, you name it. I teach at Oxford and Cambridge in this topic as well. But there's some common themes that keep coming up. And I think that's what I really want to spend my uh, this next chapter of life trying to do is help leaders, um, you know, find questions in a way that really um, define sorry, answers to questions that really matter to them as well. Yes, I mean, purpose is very fashionable, and um, I've heard people say that for 
the youngsters. It's kind of the new money. And so every uh, organization and business is kind of busy kind of rustling up an attractive purpose that will bring the talent in. It looks to me as if quite a lot of that is actually PR. How do you help people uh, sort of, you know, get beyond the whatever it is, greenwashing or whatever it might be to find their real purpose? Yeah, so let me give you a, a very real example, Christina. Um, so I, I had a, I was a victim of a fraud from a, my, my bank, um, someone trying to scamming my, my wife and ours. Current account, it was um, several thousand pounds of, of, no. of financial damage. And I won't name the bank, but just going through the process, I was just shocked by the l- l- lack of empathy. No one in the bank tried to own it. Um, no one tried to make it easy. Um, sometimes the way that um, the conversations happened, my, my wife and I, when this happened, were pretty, I'd say, quite intimidating. Um, and there was just a complete lack of, of, of really that, what I would call small P purpose. And I, I like to think about the two the differences. Big P purpose is about these big themes, you know, climate change, inequality, um, all these kinds of things that often we can get very obsessed about. They are critical, of course, to our world. But I think the best way to get to the big P is to do the small P every day. And I define in, in the both intrinsic this idea of you know, the small P purpose being about how what we do helps and serves others. And I think it's that, that um, it's very easy to lose sight of that. And Get seduced. I went on to the, the bank's um, ESG report. Of course, there's all these kind of yes. huge campaigns and initiatives they're doing. But <laughs> if they can't keep you know customers' money safe, and they can't also you know if something does go wrong, good things will go wrong. They can't be there for the customer in those moments of truth. All of that is pretty much pointless. So I think it's so important to be to be grounded by that small P purpose, that sense of helping and serving others. I, I, I wrote in the book, if you might remember, but that story of a being in the bar at the conduit, a members club. And, Lovely story. No, no, Do tell it, yes. No, no, I was just writing, it was not very uninspired writing there. I'm sure you, you, know, you might, might go through some of these once in a while. And I was just looking out of the corner of my eye and just seeing this bartender spending 45 minutes with a couple of the bar. And bartenders are not normally you know, known for generosity of time, so I was very intrigued. Went up to him afterwards and said, what were you doing? And he said, look, um, you know, what I saw in front of me was a, a divorced dad and his, uh, his teenage daughter Dad was on visitation rights, and my my role in that that moment was not just to serve the drinks; it was to forge a human connection. We got to try different things and had a conversation. And he said, "Charlotte, look, I've got to make the dad look cool in front of his daughter, so she'll want to spend more time with him." So, you know, I think we don't often think of bartending as a quote unquote purpose purposeful profession. I believe anything we do can have purpose if we frame it in the right way and have that attitude of helping and serving others at the core of it, and not forgetting. Mm. Such a moving story that really, really lovely. You also quote the uh, the one of JFK going up to, a, which I've heard before, but it's such a fantastic story of going up to uh, a porter or somebody sweeping and saying, you know, what are you doing? And he said, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. <laughs> yeah. No, re- really, really great. So I want to go back to the beginning. Your, your parents were, are they still doctors or, um, yeah, they yeah, the son. I was talking to my mum over the weekend, and she's a um, obstetrician, and uh, and and she's very very dedicated actually. And she was working on a Saturday. She works harder than I do. I think uh, quite often she's mid seventies now. And wow. um, yeah, I think for them, um, medicine was a very powerful um, sense of purpose. It was it gave respect. It was a sense of deep connection with patients. That's something they um, they continue to feel actually quite strongly um, through that piece. I think many of the pressures of the NHS, like many large organisations, can sometimes. Um, undermine that because you know you you sort of lose that connection with the patient and it becomes more of a a system but I think yeah they've managed to keep highly uh, uh, motivated and and, and through through their careers for sure. 
And presumably they came over from India, worked here and also in Saudi Arabia for some years and then came back largely, I think, for your, you and your siblings' education. Um, what did, did they actively cheat? Well, what did you learn from them about motivation? I mean, clearly from you, you observed them with this great commitment to their patients. But was there anything else you learned from them about motivation? I think it was just a sense of um, being being good to people. I think that sense of purpose, that small p purpose. So when my my mum was in Saudi Arabia, she was the only female um, obstetrician in, in, the, in the city, perhaps even the country. So she'd often be whisked off at various points, sometimes by princesses into a, a royal hospital underground and so with a you know, black limousine with no, uh, she couldn't see where she's going, all the way through to working with very, very um, uh, marginalised um, women who are delivering and so on as well. So I think that side of, um, having a very broad sense of working with a broad range of people, something I've definitely picked up, and that everyone at the core is human, and that we're no matter what status they are, we can get a lot of our, our purpose from working with them, feeling we're making a difference to others as well. Mm. I think on the other side of it, because um, it's an, it was I was an immigrant to the UK, um, there was a very strong sense of needing to go on a certain path. I think as well, and I've reflected a lot on that recently. And I think the fact I wasn't a doctor myself uh, itself took a while to get over. But more, more generally, there was a lot of pressure to tick conventional boxes. I went to, to Cambridge for undergraduate. I started my career in consulting. Many things that um, I wanted to do, but I think also, if I think back, it had very conventional trappings of status linked to them. It took me about ten years to get off that sort of road and find my own path. And, and that was in education, founding organizations. I really believed that I that had a place in the world. But it was a path. I think that that extrinsic or external pressure was something that weighed on quite strongly in how I was brought up. And I think it's taken me a while to to figure out how to manage that, but still find that that path that felt more authentic and genuine and intrinsic in, in my language as well. Very interesting. I was going to ask what your parents' ambitions were for you, but you've kind of now said medicine, basically. They wanted you to follow in their footsteps. When did they realise you weren't going to do that? Um, I was a terrible scientist, uh, Christina. So I was at school. I think so. That, that was one part of it. Actually, but I think more generally, I, I was. I came. I came back to the UK. I think I always love writing. You know, I have a, a common passion for that. And I saw your uh, UAA um, background, the Poetry Society, and so on. But um, I, I was. I, I loved writing. I was. I was a pretty good writer. I remember my um, my English teacher talking to them at the time, saying, "Charles got a real gift for this." And I remember them, them asking him, "Like, what would you do with an English degree?" I, I think you have an English degree. But, um, and I think for them, because in India there was such a big um, pressure, you know, post-independence India on science being the the way that the, what the country needs, the way to get prosperity individually, all of these things. There was just a lot of different mental models to deal with, I think, as well. And mm. um, as I'm teaching now um, at Cambridge, the undergraduate, uh, undergraduates there, where parental pressure still weighs very heavily on them mm. uh, now, and these issues are, are still very alive. But that sense of um, the world is a very dynamic place. There's so many opportunities right now. But part of it is how do you offload some of the mental baggage to allow young people to find what they really want to do? That's what a lot of my work is currently focusing on. Mm. Um, you tell a lovely story in the book about how your teacher, who wasn't even teaching you anymore and was at, and you were no longer at his school, took you to Cambridge um, to kind of explore the possibility of doing the entrance exams. And he presumed taught English and you weren't even applying to do his subject. You did economics instead. Did you seriously consider doing English or was it kind of out of the question because of your parents? No, I don't think it was. I think at that point, once I sort of said the message, I think I could have, I, that decision already happened. I think I, I was quite stubborn at the core of it, quite quiet but stubborn. So I think it wasn't that. I think um, 
I loved English a lot, but I always felt like um, there was something in me. I think I, I spent a lot of my summers in India um, with grandparents and just seeing some of the real issues of going on kids my age who were, you know, India at that time was a very poor country, even in its biggest cities. I think that sense of doing something would make a difference to that. Mm. I was very driven by the idea that economists could help um, lift standards, help poorer countries. And I, I specialized in that when I was at Cambridge. And so just seeing kids my age who were, you know, really living on on, on poverty line as so many, um, it really inspired me that I, I wanted to make some kind of positive difference to that story. And I think for me, economics felt a more obvious way to do that um, as well. So it was a really, it was about a purpose. I think there was always a, a strong sense of purpose in my life. And I wasn't quite, quite sure how to channel that. I thought I would go and work for the World Bank or something like that after Cambridge. But in the end, I ended up consulting, but got into development 10 years later and founded um, an organization that worked in about 30,000 schools in India. So it felt like it was nice to finally reach that ambition, do something hopefully positive, but um, but it took a while to, to get there as well. And what was your, when you had that, uh, your first job in strategy consulting as an engagement manager, what uh, what made you decide you to know, do so that at that point? Honestly, I think it was just the sense that it kept a lot of op- options open and it was a great way to begin a career overall. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching at, um, at the MBA school in Oxford at the moment and I start on Wednesday, in fact, and one of the messages I, I, you know, I talk a lot about to students there is these parts like consulting, um, they are really good parts and they, they really do open up a lot of different um, op- options. They give you a lot of really good training. They build an amazing network of people. I know a number of your guests have come from that world uh, over the various episodes, Christina. These are great things to embrace. So don't, you know, really embrace them, go for it. But I think the key is not, A, realize they are parts for what they are. So don't try and see them as something, you know, take that, accept them for what they are. So they have some drawbacks as well. That's fine. Just live with that and enjoy the time you're there, but also don't get trapped with the golden handcuffs. What I saw a number of friends, um, very close friends get trapped into is that because of the pressure on status, these highly paid jobs, um, it's very hard to go and do something else or branch out of that. And it was weird for me. I went to, you know, in Seattle, one of the top business schools and going to a party where everyone was, you know, my classmates were VP of something at Golden Sachs or whatever and saying, actually, I'm, I'm running an education NGO and working in India. I got all these very strange looks for a while. Um, but it made me realise that actually most of the time people were jealous of me, not the other. You know, surely you must have felt what I'm doing is great, it's worthwhile, and you couldn't possibly well, I have envied sure them envy. I, at I definitely all. was always, I was also very lucky to have a very supportive wife. And, and so that, that helped a lot, Christine, as well, because I, I made a fraction of, you know, I, I got paid sensibly, we made it, we all lived decently, there was no problem. But, you know, it was a fraction of what I could have done working for you know, those companies and so on. But, it was more that um, it's almost the sense of identity that really comes. Right? You come into this group, you're in a very elite group of people. Yes. There's an expectation that you take advantage of that, um, let's call it eliteness. And almost when you step off that path, it's that question you first ask yourself, are you, am I crazy for doing this? Why am I doing this? And then you do get these looks from, and it's almost a, a look, a bit of fear of like, you've almost opened up Pandora's box. There is a choice here. And that just takes a while to, to become comfortable with that mm. again. I, I have, most of my classmates who were at business school were lovely, and I think most did want to make a difference. They wrote essays about what they wanted to do, and I think they were genuine in most cases. It's just that life got in the way, and I think a, a big passion of mine is how to help leaders not get trapped mm. by that, but keep forging their own destiny, their own path, their own purpose, and, and finding ways. I think there are ways to do this where you can take advantage of these kinds of opportunities, but still do what you want to do. Yes, 
yes. And of course, what you learn, both presumably in your MBA and, or rather, learnt in your MB and MBA, and also in consulting, is you learn a lot of the mechanisms for a change in running businesses and organisations, which mo- many people with very good intentions think, "Oh, I'd love to do this," and absolutely haven't got a clue. Whereas yeah, you learnt how to have a clue, didn't really, you? Um, suggest to any leader is to keep a very broad network. I think one of the problems, and I think why why did some of these get trapped in these kind of golden handcuffs, their, their social circle narrowed down to only people like, so I enjoyed those evenings, but I also enjoyed, you know, hanging out yes. at, the, at the poetry society. I know we have a common uh, love of that, uh, or at a, a salon or a jazz thing or a, um, an arts event or whatever it might be, uh, or, you know, an LSC talk on, on politics. So I think keeping very broad social networks, very broad things you read and stay in touch on, that keeps you curious and alive to the world. And that allows you to shape and shift your path much more easily. Mm, absolutely. And so tell me about eBay. How did you come to found this um, charitable Yeah, So, so the idea came from it. initially from eBay. I think what was happening is eBay was taking off in the UK. This was 2000 and got 2005. And it was growing like crazy. I think it reached about 10 million users by the time I'd uh, uh, arrived in the UK. And with all that success came an obvious problem, which was there was a sense this was taking away business from charity shops. And that was not, you know, no one wanted to do that, but obviously that, and, and those shops play an important role in our country and and especially with our most um, marginalized as well. So what eBay was thinking about is it was there a way that we could try to have the best of both worlds where you can sell something on eBay, um, but donate as much as you want to charity. Uh, and that was the scheme I developed. And we also helped a number of the leading charity shops, Oxfam being the biggest example, come online because they were getting better prices. They could sell those goods on a global marketplace. Um, and very proud it's raised billions now of, of, of mm. funds around the world for good causes. For me, I think, you know, going back to how do you shift mental models and, and take risks? It was a, a halfway house for me, Christina. It was a chance to go into the social sector, but do it in a, comp- in a kind of um, more um, familiar corporate environment. And so I think, you know, again, when we make these kind of career transitions, we don't have to immediately jump right into the, the deep end. We can go at the shallow end and just gently swim until we get there and, and take small steps towards that that long-term direction. I would pretty much think you'd be in that role for my life, actually. Mm. Mm. And you, But you were only there for about a year and a half, and then you started, was it, it called was, Teaching Leaders yeah, so what, from the beginning? So what was the, so tell us the story of how that was happened. Really one where I wanted to set this marketplace up, set it up. So it was there for a couple of years, and yeah, I was very proud of what happened there. I think that um, I got approached by um, by Arc, which is a, a foundation set up by the hedge fund industries, Paul Marshall and his his colleagues there, and they were approached me just saying, "We've got we're seeing this interesting data that shows that there is actually four times more variation within a school in a challenging area in the UK." than between schools. And it took me actually a few minutes to actually, what does this even mean? And you would never have, you know, for example, um, within a, let's say Google, a, a large corporate, you wouldn't have such wide variations within a, an organization. What it was telling us was that the leadership and management within schools, especially in these challenging um, parts of the, of the UK, the, the leaders were not seeing themselves as leaders, basically. Um, it, you know, teaching was very collegiate. There was a sense that Everyone is equal. Um, I can't possibly impinge on my other, you know, the autonomy of my my colleague, that sort of thing. And so I think what we wanted to do is work on the culture of schools and look at how can we build a, a stronger sense of what being a leader and manager meant in the very engine room of, of a school, which is typically your heads of, you know, heads of English or heads of maths or heads of year eight. 
Um, and it was fascinating trying to develop this program from scratch in a very unusual setting. Um, we were lucky to get ARCS funding early on, and then um, the government, actually, the DFE, I worked very closely with Michael Gove and the um, famous Dominic Cummings, uh, managed to um, persuade them to fund it, take it to every school in the country. And then um, Obama had just got elected in, in the US and worked with his team to take it to the States there. So that chance to be able to take an idea from scratch, actually, that's probably the first time I'd really founded something like that. And with that level of ambition, many mistakes along the way. But I think there were many great people around me, advisors, partners, funders, who helped me on that journey to lead something for the first time. But I realized there was so much I needed to do to improve my own my own self-leadership, actually, itself. I mean, amazing. And then you you um, started STIR Education in uh, 2012, which has helped hundreds of thousands of teachers fall back in love with teaching and helped millions of children and has, well, tell me what the spark was behind that. Yes, I think what, what had happened in the, in the UK was that I, I really believed again in teachers very strongly. I don't say again, I, I've, I've been the benefit uh, beneficiary of great teachers myself, but just that sense that so much of this was about how we look at a problem. And I think we'd often seen teachers as the problem rather than the solution. So if I take India as an example, where I was born, the government over a period of about 15 years had built a million schools across the country. About 240 million kids were in the school system, incredible achievements, but they'd hired about eight, six to eight million teachers very rapidly, literally over a period of a, a few years. And actually that with that, that sense of vocation, the sense of being a guru, which is you know, thousands of years old in Indian culture, that had been lost, it had become a civil service job, and a, all of that moral purpose had kind of vanished, that purpose that we talked about had, had sort of been extinguished. So the question was, how do you try and fix that? And I'm an economist by training. The thing that baffled me, that it wasn't primarily a money problem. Of course, things could be a bit better here and there, but in general, teachers and government schools were paid quite well. Working conditions were fine. It wasn't that that wasn't the, the biggest problem. There seemed to be something about the that sense of purpose being lost by teachers, that that sense that they didn't have autonomy in the classrooms, they felt very controlled and micromanaged, and they weren't getting better. There was no sense of mastery in what they were doing either. And those three things I, I learned quite deeply that were, were real challenges in almost any um, system, actually, whether it's education, health, almost anything. So we created a scheme where we essentially had uh, every month, eventually about 8,000 meetings of teachers taking place, about 200,000 teachers would be engaged, running through governments. And those meetings were structured carefully to allow um, teachers to improve their practice, but actually to find their purpose again, to feel that sense of autonomy and to get better together as a collective profession. Um, so yeah, a fascinating journey. And it was also really interesting to reconnect with countries like India, to spend time in Africa, to work in places like Indonesia. So a real roller coaster. Incredible. And and what's also incredible is the scale of it and the scale of the ambition, because the aim is to reach 300 million children by 2013, 2030. And I'm fascinated by where that kind of can-do spirit comes from, because I think most of us look at the scale of the challenges facing the world and our country alone, which are pretty enormous at the moment, and very often feel overwhelmed by it all and feel that we can't do very much. And you are looking at it and thinking, yes, well, let's help 300 million children turn their lives around. How do, where does that spirit come from? And also the self-confidence to kind of see this vision through. I know you're not at STIR anymore, but, you know, that's the vision and you founded it and it's still going. 
Yeah, so I think, no, thanks for saying that. But I think a lot of it is, what I find a lot as a leader is that I, I was very self-conscious early on when I set up teaching leaders. I remember giving a speech once to, you know, a group of teachers who were coming on the program. And honestly, it was awful. I just felt like it was so stilted and, and jargon. And I think what I learned over the course of my leadership journey was that to get lost in the problem. I think that sense of sort of self-consciousness, ego, if you like, um, the sense of the imposter syndrome, stuff that many of us face, a lot of it stems the fact that we're, we're, we're looking at ourselves rather than looking at the problem in front of us. And I'm a big believer that if we can find what I call a wicked problem, a problem where there's no easy solution, we're much more likely to have that sense of motivation and flow because these are such enormous problems that we'll, A, we'll never solve them. So there's no worry of us being too ambitious, but also um, we almost lose ourselves in that process. And there's so many things, you know, I think about Christina at the time, it's there going to government offices, trying to negotiate with ministers to get this, this approach you know, better than the system. I, I'd never worked in India before. I'd never been in a government office. I had been to India many times to see family, but this was a complete new adventure. I'd never been in Africa in any meaningful way. And I was a bit crazy to try and do this, but if there was just no one else who would do it, if I didn't do it, no one else would. So, so you're, just, you're just forced into these things. And I think my advice for anyone in their careers, but especially early on, is throw yourself into something that's so much bigger than you that you just push yourself to the very limit of where you go. Uh, and you don't worry and you almost have to suspend judgment because there is no alternative. If you can't do it, it won't get done. So don't worry about the perfectionism. Do learn. And as long as you're open and, and growing and developing, um, it's a wonderful way of going through. So I don't think it came from some extreme self-confidence, but the sense that almost that sort of moral that purpose we talked about, that you know mm. I've got a role here, there's something I need to do. Let me do it the very best I can and let me be open to feedback and to growth along the way and were there ever times when you thought actually i can't do this no i mean we had i mean if you look at stir as an example we had um several colleagues died over the, over the period um uh one was a, a suicide for example um there were we had a huge fraud in in our uganda office by our own accountant which was in terms not sleeping for many many nights we had the pandemic where schools in, in uganda for example were closed for two years and we were trying to keep our team going and, and keep having impact on the ground. So pretty much every possible uh, disaster happened over the time. I think that, that what I learned over that period is, is really about staying in the ring. That, that there's, there's, no, there's no magic bullet, there's no secret. The things you can do is have good people around you. So if something does go wrong, you know that you've got people to support you. I had a very supportive board chair, board funded, but especially an incredible team. But I think the second thing you also learn is that actually a lot of leadership is getting through these things and keep keeping on going. If you do, you will fight on to a better day, just that that day will go and there'll be another incredible triumph. A new government will say they want to work with you or you know, some kind of major thing there as well. So it's almost the perspective of realizing you've got these bumps in the road, but staying on the path because you genuinely believe on it, back to the idea of purpose, mm. that helps us stay, you know, um, stay true to what we want to try and do. Mm. Most of the things you mentioned just then were sort of awful things that happened, but they were not your fault. Have you ever felt in your career that you've really messed up? I think many, many, many times. I'm just thinking what was a good, I mean, there's so many examples of what's, what's a good one. So I think, for example, when I came um, into uh, being a CEO for the first time, I, I ran teaching leaders um, and I was trying to manage, I never managed a board before. And it was a relatively politically complicated board. We had the government on the board. We had uh, various uh, foundations on it who were all contributing in some way. 
I think I had that consulting back to our sort of early training in life, um, that consulting mindset of I had to be the smartest person in the room. And I had to show why, you know, my answers, my suggestions were, were, were the best ones to go for. And that was how I got my validation. That's how consulting worked, right? You were prized on your intelligence and that's how you, know, you were praised and so on. What I realized actually was, and my, my board chair helped me a lot through this process, but that actually wasn't that important. What was more important was to make people feel that they were part of this and they were shaping it with you and you were taking their ideas on and you were building a, a coalition of support and also adapting your ideas to their feedback. They knew a lot more about education than I did actually at that time, for sure, and, and still do. So I think learning to to suppress my own ego took a while because, you know, in consulting, you'd get a, even at eBay, you'd get a score at a one to five. It was all very individually focused. But learning actually as leaders, a lot of it is to sort of not worry about yourself so much and focus on the other person. That took me a while and probably took me about 18 months to really figure that out with a lot of coaching for my board chair, Christina, as well. Mm, how interesting. You you mentioned working with politicians and you have a whole section in the book about how, in a way, politicians are set up to fail because the system lets them and us down and because there's so little trust and and because there's so much division and particularly in recent years and because essentially a, a, a ludicrously small number of people, about 100 people in this country have a ridiculous amount of power and they don't even have any training in passing legislation or assessing policy or any of these things. And as we've just seen with trustonomics, these things can implode very, very badly. I mean, I think what many of us feel, what I feel in relation to that is a sense of impotent rage, actually, probably with an emphasis, well, I was going to say with an emphasis on the impotence, but also with an emphasis on the rage. <laughs> and, um, and you, what shines through your book is a desire to reduce inequality, to increase opportunity, and for example, you talk about um, introducing universal basic income. I was very interested to read that the collated studies overall present a positive picture because I've read quite a few studies that, or summaries of quite a few studies that haven't been very successful. But clearly there is this passion for justice, really, for social justice of a kind, but not in a kind of, um, you know, sort of, militant left-wing Corbynista way. I just wonder, where does anger feature in all of this? That's a great question, actually. So I think the challenge is that it, it can become very easy to to get triggered into anger, right? And as a leader, um, you know, there's so many times that just when I was working with governments in a country and you say, why aren't you moving faster? What's going on? Why are you being so complacent? All of these things. Um, the easy temptation would be to go and say, you're, you're being lazy, you want a bribe from me, all this sort of stuff. And I didn't get asked that, but it just felt, I think a better way is to say, no, there's something sy systemic going on. I think, you know, if I look at teachers, you know, the, the story that inspired me to set up Stern actually was hearing that, you know, um, the story of a, uh, a parent who'd been told that the, the son of a donkey will always be a donkey. Oh, and, how awful, how awful. And again, yeah, I was very angry when I heard that, but I thought, what makes a human being? Why would a teacher possibly say that a child? It reflects so many challenges they're facing. Um, they're overwhelmed. They don't know what to do. They're out of depth. They're losing their own belief and confidence, all the things we've sort of talked about. So I think, you know, basically the key inside of all my work is that 
most people are born with a high degree of intrinsic motivation. They they come in wanting to do something good in the world. Very, I've never met a teacher who said, I'm coming in to wreck children's lives. That's not mm-hmm. yet. But it's the culture and systems around us. So it's a big company or a organization, whatever it might be, that, that tends to undermine that and create almost a cancerous culture. So I think it's really important for leaders to to reset that culture and build that positive frame in. And I think politics is a great example. I really enjoyed some of your, your more political episodes on the podcast, but those questions about how can leaders try and set a culture where they're really firmly focused on national purpose in the broadest sense, not not factions, they really empower everyone. Even the hundred, um, Christina, ministers we have in the UK right now, most of them will tell me off the record that they don't have a lot of power. They hear most of the stuff on headlines. It's probably a kitchen cabinet that really runs the country. That's a real shame as well. But as you said, that sense of um, getting better, there's almost no mechanisms for training, development, when you're on board, but also right through your career as a politician. We would never allow this for doctors or nurses or any important profession. How can we allow this? When we've seen you know, the, the trustonomic stuff, how, 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 how bad things can go when we get it wrong. So I think we need a real recalibration of, of how we think about development or professional development in, uh, in, in our politics today and, and really step up the game there. Have you been able to say that to any politicians? So working, I'm doing a lot more right now with, with, with civil services in a few different right. countries, Christine, as well, but I'm looking out for some opportunities there. If anyone mm. wants to reach out, please do. But I do think there's a, a real chance to develop it. The more I've looked into this area, it does feel like there's a, a huge gap around this side of political leadership that I'd love to you know, develop further on, actually, based on that. Because mm. it seems that clearly lots of politicians are getting media coaching as we discovered from Liz Truss's strange new Margaret Thatcher voice but um, but there I'm not sure that many of them get actual coaching as in how do I do my best work as opposed to how I present how do I present myself and um, clearly the former is a million times more important than the latter. Yeah and I, I work a lot with large corporates as you know Christina and I think um, you know, it's the same thing there that often there's a lot of this focus on how do I sound, how do I look, rather than who is the leader I really want to be? And I think if we can actually focus the support on the the more important question, as you said, that's what's going to make And then the communication will come naturally. I think when politicians stumble around communications because they're not genuinely behind their own messages, I don't think they fully believe it, they're not really having that conviction, authenticity, then let's get that sense of purpose strongly embedded first, and then everything else will come naturally. Have you developed from the research you've done for Intrinsic, you you work with leaders now and sort of facilitating and you say your website says coaching. Have you developed um, a kind of, so have you developed, obviously you've developed sort of tools and mechanisms and approaches, but can you say a bit more about how you actually do that work? Yeah, so it's been, it was again a real learning actually from this. So the book was written for um, for everyone really. It's, it's a book for anyone to find motivation, but where the biggest traction came was from leaders. And I'm working on a second book at the moment, which is really specifically focused on leaders and this idea of intrinsic leadership. But what I found was that creating these spaces where leaders can come together within their organizations, discussing with their leadership teams, um, often the CEOs and their teams, in very safe spaces to look at these questions of, you know, how do I dare to set a new direction? I know that my current direction isn't quite right. I'm just a bit scared of trying to get off, go off piste here. How do I ignite the potential of everyone? Um, I think you know, the whole diversity agenda is very, very important, but it can very quickly lead to a sort of box checking type of approach mm. rather than a genuine desire to ignite everyone's potential. 
how do I try and align people? And I think leaders, especially generationally, that's the biggest thing I hear. How do I, my view of work and its role in my life is fundamentally different from, you know, Gen Z's coming in, for example. How do we have these conversations and fuse a common understanding of what this looks like? And how do I set that learning culture where I keep growing? I've hit, you know, my, my title may not change, but I want my my role to meaningfully change. So those are the four questions I look at around, you know, um, direction, potential motivation. And I create this these guided journeys for organizations where they do that in a very safe space, usually over about six to eight months, around mm-hmm. a major challenge, a major inflection point. It might be a, a new CEO coming. It might be a major ch- change in their market uh, marketplace. It might be they want to rethink differently about internal employee feedback. Something's happened that has changed the world fundamentally. Um, and I found that's the most powerful way to to create those spaces. What's so exciting, I've done this with about 30 organizations and there are about 70 leaders. And now I'm going to bring them together next year into a, into a network where they can share across sectors, you know, all the way from, you know, the NHS to a large corporate or a university. And that ability to really fuse common themes and learn together is something I'm yeah, super excited about. You see, you are very humble in the way you present yourself, but you are doing kind of big things here and with a strong belief in their ability to bring about change and with evidence to support the fact that the things you've done do bring about change. I'm still fascinated by, and you say it's not to do with self-confidence, you say it's to do with purpose, but many people want to change the world and improve the world. But most people just don't do what you're doing. Where, Where do those... What do you think are the actual qualities that you have, personality-wise, you as a person, beyond your sense of purpose that enables you to do this? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I'm a very snobble question, but I think I think wonder if there's something in there about humility that you sort of alluded to, Christina, as well. I think if we go in with our um, ego first, which is often how leadership is construed, that we've got, you've got to have the right answer, it's all about me. Um, if anyone doubts me, I'm a weak leader. It's so easy to um, set ourselves up for failure. I mean, look at the Liz Trust demark, right? I mean, if a little bit of time gauging with the markets, talking to people first before going such a radical agenda. Um, so I think this question of, of trying not to focus on, on, on the me part, I think has been a big feature of my life. It's more that I really care about this topic. I'm passionate about it. I want to make a difference. I'm open to how, what that difference will look like. And I'm open to what that, what that actually might involve. But don't almost don't um, don't mistrust uh, that 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 care for the topic is really cool. that that core purpose and passion is deeply there. I think that's what I found. It's almost letting go of the outcome and not getting worried if it if you fall flat on your face. That's not a rejection. I think a lot of people they want to make a difference, but they're worried if in the next first month if I don't make this into a a big bestseller or you know get the president of something on my board or whatever it is, it, it's a failure. It's not. It's just it's a bit of a journey. So almost giving yourself a little bit of love, a longer term time frame, and really focusing on trusting the process, trust that if you do these things, um, over time, you'll get the outcomes you want, maybe. Yes, I mean, most of the people I've had on this podcast, and who I've interviewed throughout my journalism career have, have had the kind of passion you're talking about in relation to their work because generally speaking that's how people get very good at things but you ask many people and they don't really know what they're passionate about or they're sort of interested in lots of different things 
so how do and also it is a fact that not everybody in the world can do something they adore I mean you you know you can then take the kind of almost Buddhist approach of love your your job whether it's washing up or whatever else it might be and that can be that can work very effectively but it can also be a kind of brainwash brainwashing yourself to accept your station and and um so I'm just wondering sort of more widely for for people who aren't great artists or great leaders or who are kind of relatively small cog in uh, a big wheel how does this how can you transfer some of this uh stuff to to someone who's probably going to be in quite a junior job for most of their working life so I think it's taken me also a little while to, to, to sort of flip between this big P purpose and small P purpose and see how they connect. So let me take an example of my work now. I'm very proud to work with about 70 leaders, but I could, and lots of people have been calling me saying, you know, why don't you create a, a training business and you could work with thousands of leaders and you could hire hundreds of people. And and I just don't, yeah, that's not what I want to do. I, I understand the big P, but that, that leads to very big numbers and all of these things as well. I've done that before. I feel I've I've gone through that chapter. This this stage of life was really about trying to take a, a a quieter space where I really wanted to make a bigger difference to a small number of people. Yes, and learn and, and share that learning more widely through my writing and and speaking. And, and so, it's very tempting to go and, and and follow that sort of temptation, as opposed to saying what did, what really matters to me in this chapter right now. So I think one of the, if if I'm in a job where I feel a bit trapped, if that's the example, I think there's a lot of that, as you said about that small p purpose of sucking everything you can right now around, you know, how do I make it as fulfilling as possible? So let's say you're in a job where you're, um, a real example, so let's say you're an accountant where you, you know how to do the management accounts um, pretty much robotically, and there's not much challenge left in that, but you realize that actually in the company, almost no one understands the information you're providing them. You, you work in your job craft, I talk about this in the book, with your, your manager and say, look, I want to spend two days a week actually going around, walking people's desks, not sitting down with the numbers and talking to them about it, helping them make better decisions. That's going to help, you know, improve my impact and purpose in that sense. But also it's going to help me see the business business more widely. It's going to contribute new skills to me. So I can take maybe a more broader uh, general management approach or a broader approach in my work. Mm. There are lots of things we can do to not see jobs as fixed if we're talking about work specifically and think of them as much more malleable. We can craft them in a way that allows us that and we're in a very conducive labor market where we can have those conversations quite quite openly so that's the sort of small day-to-day stuff the long-term piece around direction is really important longer term and getting a sense of what kind of shape your career wants to take uh, if you think of mine it's been a bit of an hourglass one where i started very broad with things like consulting and so on then i became quite specialized in education now i'm broadening out again and i love that chance to work across sectors that's quite conscious as well. So thinking about that long-term path as well, where am I trying to go? And then you can link these two things together, I think. Yes, yes. And so what what advice do you give to kind of, well, how do you talk to your children about careers? I, I know they're, they're not of an age where they are about to go and run Goldman Sachs or anything else, but do, I presume they know what you do. I mean, and, and I presume because you've talked about, you, you talk I understand from the book that you actually do talk to your family about your work. H- how has it shaped their thinking or how is it shaping their thinking about work, do you think? Yeah, so I think what I try and uh, role model really is a couple of things. One, I think is this sort of abundance mindset, Christina, where there are so many opportunities out there. I think it's that, that 70% of the world's jobs have not been invented yet. Mm. So 
there's just so many things they don't need to uh, i give a talk at my son's school he's 11 and we were just talking about this all of them are being asked like what are you going to do and i i told them, look i've gone through about six careers in about 25 years this is a redundant question it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what yeah. matters more is you find something you enjoy doing you're deeply curious and interested and passionate about you make a contribution and really make a difference to others there and then you'll find out from that the next path yes um, rather than trying to fixate on on sort of one path, which is really unlikely to be um, a reality in the world we're living in right now. So one is the sense of don't worry about, you know, nailing your mask to one idea. That The whole idea is to be curious and keep allowing you to do that. The second thing, I think, is to be distinctive and try to find something that um, you have a, a real passion for that is really true to you, that is not so true for others. So for me, this whole area of intrinsic leadership was one where these are questions I grapple with a lot in my own life and I felt building a platform and a, an interest in that, that was also really, really uh, important as well. So, yeah, I think being distinctive and also um, just finding, um, having that kind of explorer mindset into careers, I think, is also very important. I love that. Do you think that's what children are being taught at school? I think what's happening, and this is, you know, even the work at, at um, Oxford and Cambridge I'm doing right now, Christina, um, what's happened is, you know, Universities like Cambridge, which I'm, you know, I went to myself, they've become like a Gucci bag. I talked about this in the book, but they've become a status symbol, right? People pursue them because they believe it's on on this kind of ladder where a great job will then, sorry, a great university will lead you to a great job, and then life is is happy ever after. That certainly wasn't the reality for me. There were so many um, shifts along that, and I think what's important is to embrace education for its full intrinsic value. It's such a great place to learn about ourselves, to learn about the world, to learn how to engage with people, to figure out what we really love doing, what our true potential is. Um, so I see in education at every stage that, that that desire to reduce it down to a set of targets and measures, which I understand why and the, the temptation to that, but I think it's undermining the, the, the core value of education. And bizarrely, um, it's going completely against where the world of work is going. The world of work really wants us to be more holistic people, broader, a broader range of interests, and it's actually causing real harm rather than helping. Yeah. Um, you, you talk a bit in your book about the rise of AI and how universal basic income might help with that, as with a number of other um, problems we face as societies. I've, I've heard so many, in fact, I did. I was writing a piece of Sunday Times some years ago, a big piece, which in the end didn't happen, about the rise of the robot and the effect on the workplace. And there was a very alarming report from PwC and, and a kind of ludicrously precise report from PwC that said something like, you know, 37% of jobs will be eliminated in the next 20 years. You think, how on earth? We, we don't know anything. We didn't know a pandemic was coming. How on earth can you make those kind of precise predictions? And others, I read a report recently that somebody, um, not a report, a, a big, a very long essay about and to me, a very a surprisingly optimistic assessment of where we were going with climate change and the, the rise of the robot and so on. And I loved it because I was desperate for some hope, but not was not entirely convinced by it. Where are you on the kind of creating? I mean, you, you've mentioned that many jobs will be created, but do you think, you know, the kind of really pessimistic view is it's going to wipe out jobs for all but a kind of overclass of, you know, tech titans and um, underclass of people doing things that robots can't do and everybody else is going to be unemployed. Where are you in that sort of spectrum? 
I think there's a huge um, opportunity in, in what um, some people call heal jobs, basically things that are you know really about human human interaction. If you look at some of the challenges we're facing at all levels in our workforce, Christina, around human relationships, human contact, levels of loneliness, um, even this the bank story I told you, right? It's not about the the transaction process of the bank. It was the way that when something went wrong, what was the what was the human um, solution or the human accompaniment that followed that problem? So I think what's going to happen is we're going to see a much higher premium on human skills compared to technical skills. They're both going to be important and they're hard to um, separate. But I think if you look at where we've come from, we've, we've really overvalued technical skills. That's how, going back to the whole why do medicine versus read English, for example, I think that will change a lot. I think we'll have a much more balanced approach where both aspects are are, are important there. And so I'm, I'm quite optimistic. I'm, you know, Keynes, the economist, writing about 100 years ago about how we'll have this age of leisure right today where we would only be working two, three hours a day and look at most of I'm sure you have a pretty busy schedule as well for the rest of the day. It's not happens. We've always managed to create new things that allow that to happen. There are distributional issues. And I think things like you, um, the basic income can help us towards that. They're not panaceas, but they can help sort of smooth the wheels. But I think back to education, if we can create these systems where we can allow everyone to be lifelong learners, that will allow us to migrate to wherever these opportunities are. We don't know what they look like yet, but we know they will be there. And so it's more just trusting that we'll have a good system in place to allow people over the medium term to make those transitions. So I, I'm actually very optimistic, but I do think we need to reconfigure what we value both in the education system as well as in how we support uh, the system of work, what one wants once we're in work itself. Mm. And for anybody listening who's feeling a bit jaded about their own work situation, is there one particular piece of advice you would offer at this point to help so I think short them. term, look at who are you helping and serving, that sense of purpose, again, with a small p. Um, is there, um, can you reconnect with the person you're, you're helping through your work? I think almost whenever we feel jaded, we lose the connection. We've sliced and diced organizations, so we, we don't see the customer or the patient or the child or whatever profession we're in. Re, recalibrate on that person, who, you know, who are you trying to help? What are you trying to do to help them? That personal mission statement example. Um, I think have more autonomy. So remember that you, you're you not just the vagary of what the job description says. Go beyond it, challenge it, talk to whoever you need to talk to, but shift it. And just think about where can you get better, the idea of mastery. What do you really want to develop in? And maybe a good place to start is these human skills that we tend to undervalue. How can you develop further in those things? So in the short term, that's probably a, a good um, pointer. In the long term, Think about your long-term direction. Where can you make a unique contribution? Is there a problem out there that you want to make a bigger dent in, in in a small way? Think about how you might want to get on that path as well. Fantastic. Really inspirational stuff. Thank you so much, Sheriff. It's been a, a real pleasure to talk to you. Real pleasure, Christina. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to The Art of Work on Apple, Spotify, or any of the main podcast directories. And I'd be really grateful if you'd share rate it and or leave a review. Do sign up to my free Substack newsletter, also called The Art of Work. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast, my books, or explore the possibility of coaching with me, do have a look at my website, theartofwork.co. And do join me for another podcast next week.